0: Today, we're looking at Jesus as the Good Shepherd, probably the primary text in Scripture and certainly from the Gospels of teaching Jesus as the Good Shepherd is John chapter 10. Uh, We're going to start by reading verses 1 through 13, and then we'll pick it up from there with verse 14. John 10, verses 1 through 13. Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he has a hired hand and cares nothing for those sheep. Here ends our first lesson. Again, tonight's teaching comes from John chapter 10. We already read verses 1 through 13 on the good shepherd. We're going to pick it up from there at verse 14, where we read the following. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep hen. I must bring them also, and they too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay my life down, only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was in the temple courts walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews who were there gathered around him saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, then tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you did not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. This is God's word. Last week we were in John chapter 9 and it was the story of Jesus bringing back to sight a man who had been born blind. And uh, if you remember, one of the details of that account was that Jesus worked the miracle, particularly on a Sabbath day. And the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, had very specific restrictions and regulations about what was allowable and what was not allowable on the Sabbath day. And he had violated their man-made rules on the day, and therefore they accused him of sin. He brought a guy who had never seen to sight, and they accused him of sin. And he uses that opportunity to say to them, see, this is evidence that you guys who presume to be leaders of Israel are actually blind Guides, you yourself are spiritually blind. You're blind guides, you're bad shepherds. See, the Jewish people at the time knew exactly what the shepherd analogy meant, both literally and metaphorically because the shepherd analogy was used consistently throughout the Old Testament, especially in, in, in Psalms and Ezekiel and Isaiah to convey the message of the coming Messiah and who he would be for the nation. He would be a good shepherd. And Jesus uses all of this occasion as the foundation for teaching of himself as the good shepherd. And here's the way we're going to break it down here tonight. These three points. We're going to advise you to accept the imagery of sheep. Become okay with the idea of being sheep. Two, aim for Jesus as the gateway in your life. And number three, rest in the security of God as the good shepherd. Okay? So humble yourselves and accept the imagery of sheep. Aim on a day-to-day basis for Jesus as the gateway and rest in the security of God as good shepherd. First of all, accept the imagery of sheep. And I'll just circle you back here to verse 14, where it says, I am the good shepherd, I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. The Bible is really good at offering imagery that is simultaneously encouraging and upon further glance, a little bit insulting. And uh, so, for instance, I remember back when I was in grad school, I took a person. It was the first official personality test that I'd ever taken. It was one, every couple of years, they changed what the main kind of personality profile is. At that time, it was something called the DISC profile that a lot of businesses were doing. All the kids in my class had to take one. Uh, I took one, and my assessment was that I, maybe told you this before, I was a dominant, introverted, abstract thinker. Dominant, introverted, abstract thinker. And I was reading through the assessment and I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I was like, wait a second. I turned to my classmate and I was like, I think the test just like scientifically told me I was a jerk, you know, like it's, it's quantified now, <laughs> you know, like there's official metrics on this. The, the very information that I thought was actually a fair assessment at first became, as I thought about it, a little bit insulting. The Bible does that too. The Bible does that with the image of a good shepherd. The idea of Jesus as a good shepherd is simultaneously one of the most heartening images in scripture to such an extent that we we use it for comfort at our funerals, our funerals, but our loved ones' funerals, right? Uh, we, We read from Psalm 23, almost every funeral, and we say, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I feel no evil for God. With his rod and his staff, he comforts me. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He leads me to green pastures. The Lord is my shepherd. But implicit in the idea of the Lord as our good shepherd is... We are therefore nothing more than sheep. When the Bible calls us sheep, it's not saying we're cute and fluffy and cuddly. It's an insult. Everybody at that time understood sheep. Sheep are kind of dim-weighted. They're defenseless. They're directionless. And they're often infested with pests. It's an insult. Sheep don't think very well and sheep don't live very well. Have you ever noticed in the fall when, it, when hunting season opens how none of the guys in your family go on sheep hunting trips? You know why that is? Because there is no hunting. With she- if you really want a sheep, you know what you do? You go over and you grab one and you take it with you because it doesn't know how to do anything different, right? Almost all other animals in nature, you, you can either release them into the wild and they have enough defense mechanism that they can fend for themselves and roam free, or they're at least self-aware enough that they say, wait a second, I can't make it on my own, and then they navigate their way back to their master and say, at least I will get some food and drink and and a warm bed and some protection. Not sheep, though. See, sheep, they, they have no defense mechanisms by which they can fight anyone. They cannot outrun any predator, and they also are so directionally inept that they can never find their way actually back home. And the Bible says, yeah, that's what you are. You know, it's, it's to some extent, it, it's an insult. The sheep will just foolishly wander off to their own death. The smartest, most talented sheep doesn't stand a chance. The Bible says to some extent, that's us. We're not in Scripture majestic horses. We're not domineering lions. We're not uh, soaring eagles. We're not loyal dogs. We're not even house cats, as, as offensive as that would be. We're not even house cats. We're sheep. Are you okay with that? The Bible says that's us, and it's offensive, but truth isn't contingent on our feelings. Truth is contingent on accuracy. While the portrayal of sheep is not particularly flattering, it nonetheless also indicates something very important, that is that we are extraordinarily valuable And that's psychologically very helpful because so modern psychology for years has had these issues with the religious establishment because the suggestion is that anytime you start referring to people as guilty or sinful, uh, you are going to cripple their self-esteem, right? Now, to some extent, there potentially would be truth in that. And this is one of the reasons why you'll never hear a secular psychologist use the word sinful. You won't hear most Christian psychologists use the word sinful very often. However, my correction to that would be correction doesn't deflate someone unless it devalues someone. Got yeah, that correction doesn't have to deflate anybody as long as it's not devaluing that person. Uh, sheep are dependent creatures, but they have tremendous inherent value. It's just that their value is not based on their performance. Their value is based on who they are. You see, pound for pound, sheep in the ancient world arguably had about as much value as anybody. they their wool is used for clothes and for blankets. Their hides were used for a ton of different reasons. Their meat, uh, every time you go to Oakland Heroes, you value uh, sheep meat, you know? They have all sorts of value, but their value is not in their performance. Their value is in who they are. Now, see, psychologically, it's, it's, in other words, their value is not in their capacity. It's in their status. And it's very important for you To detach your value from your performance. Parents and coaches and teachers, I mean, you're going to fail your kids if you don't coach them to detach their value from their performance, because everybody else in life is only going to value them on the basis of their performance. So you have to say, no, 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 no. Your value is the image of God was placed upon you. The blood of Jesus Christ was spent on you. Don't you dare ever consider yourself lacking value. And yet simultaneously, you are totally and utterly dependent on this Jesus. So don't you dare try to ever go a single day in your life without communicating to him or letting him communicate to you through his word. You see? Now, whether or not you find the sheep analogy encouraging or discouraging, it's helpful because it provides a lot of explanatory power for our experience of life. And one of the things I mean by that, I'll just keep it to one, but one of the things I mean by that is if we are in fact sheep and sheep need a shepherd, then we intuitively humans understand that we're all looking for a shepherd. And I would say whether you're religious or you're not, whether you're Christian or you're not, we understand this. Every single person is looking for someone or something that we think can take care of us, that we think will make us all right, that we think can lead us, that we think can guide us to green pastures, that we think will protect us no matter how scary of a valley we're in. Every single one of us is listening to some voice. Every single one of us wants to be known and cared for. And a lot of humans, by the way, when you look to bad shepherds, it blows things up. A lot of humans are looking to a romantic relationship to shepherd their life, and they they suffocate their significant other in the process. And a lot of humans expected that their parents should have been that perfect shepherd in their life, and they're very bitter about their childhood. And a lot of humans actually put the weight of God on their kid and expect their kid to give their life meaning and purpose. And that is really cruel. And the American public, at least once every four years, assumes that there is going to be somebody that comes along who can bring us through dark times. And many other people are looking to their own logic and their own feelings to shepherd them. But the common denominator is we always get deceived this way. We always fall for this trick, being deceived, that someone less than God is going to be able to shepherd us in some way, can give us what only God can give us. And therefore, we are all very much sheep and we all very much need a good shepherd, okay? Okay. That's point one. Point two, aim for Jesus as the gateway. Because of the dangerous tendency of sheep to overestimate their competence and also to like wander away and get distracted with life, it's very difficult to keep track of sheep. Very difficult. Uh, this is one of the reasons, by the way, that every church needs a very sophisticated tracking system of where, you know, where their people are going. Honestly, it shames me. It's good that we always need like information from the group, the body, the flock here. And the reason we're not trying to annoy anybody, we're not trying to get secret information and steal people's you know, identity theft or anything like that. We're trying to keep track of the flock. It shames me every time I read through Luke 15 in the parable of the lost lamb, the lost sheep, and, and the shepherd. He's got 100 sheep. One of them goes missing. Somehow he notices. You know how difficult it would be to look at 100 sheep and then you turn and then you turn back and there's 99 sheep and you're like wait a second I'm missing a sheep. They're all identical. They'll look at you know how hard it is like visually how do you detect one sheep missing? And the answer is you don't. You don't visually detect one sheep missing. Shepherds had incredibly sophisticated systems for numbering their sheep so that they could keep track of them. Uh, if you want something interesting to look up, uh, it's called Yantan Tethera in Great Britain, which has been used for centuries by shepherds uh, to count their sheep. It's a series of counting on your knuckles. And apparently through that, they can get up to 400 somehow. But it's a sophisticated system for numbering the flock that you're supposed to be taking care of. We don't use knuckles here. We use something called Church Center. We have uh, another database. We have dozens of spreadsheets. And when I say we, I mean our pastoral staff Kate Krieger as our member engagement lead, Lindy in the office, uh, Paula Reese and the member care team. We put tons of time and energy and money and info into making sure that a flock is fed and protected and cared for because not only is it difficult to keep them together, but we also, according to this text, there's thousands of sinister spirits out there, which our text calls thieves that are trying to take sheep away from the flock. So, you have to have a sophisticated system. In it. And very closely related to this idea of safety amongst the flock is the idea of a sheep pen. Okay? Uh, that's to keep them in and keep others out. And the most important part of the sheep pen is the gate. You notice in this text that Jesus says, verse seven, very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. Now, the overarching thing that that means is. We're going to give a specific, a narrow, and a broad application of that, but the overarching thing is for you to get from where you are to where God wants you to be, you have to go through Jesus. To get from where you are to where God wants you to be, you have to go through Jesus. Now, the specific application, the narrow application of that is the only pathway to salvation is Jesus Christ. Jesus is going to say a couple chapters later here in John's gospel, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one will ever come to the Father except through me. It's arguably the most controversial statement that Jesus makes into our postmodern relativistic world that's characterized by radical inclusion. The idea that Jesus is the only way to salvation. Our modern society doesn't love that. The idea that he's the one path, and yet at the end of the day, it's not up to us to figure out whether or not we like it. It's whether or not it's actually true. And the Bible says, for anyone to receive salvation, it's going to only come through the grace and truth of Jesus Christ. It's going to only come through the gifted righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's only going to come through the spirit-given faith in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And people will, you know, ask me as a pastor, you know, when they hear that, like, well, what about this person? What about the person who was born in the world over there? What about the person who, you know, will they get in? I'm like, I don't know. Like, I don't really have a good answer for that. All I know is what I've been told. And I actually think it's perfectly logical that sheep would struggle to understand the methodology of their shepherd. And it's not my job to be the judge at the end of time. It is my job in my current role that I had better not contradict or correct what Jesus has very clearly stated. And what he states very clearly is he alone is the gate. He alone is the way. Don't overthink it. And so... It's not only in the narrow sense that Jesus is the only pathway to salvation. It absolutely is that. But if the bigger idea is God is bringing us from where we are to where he wants us to be, and you have to pass through Jesus, in a broader sense, what this also means is it's, it's a super practical filter for our day-to-day lives. Uh, super practical. It means that for you to get where you currently are to where God wants you to be, you have to aim through Jesus. You have to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. You have to pass through the gate and, and, and look for the kingdom. What that means, so I, I've shared something like this with you before, but it bears repeating. When counseling Christians, almost invariably, what we uncover after talking through for a while is that they're aiming at something wrong. And by wrong, I don't mean the thing is inherently sinful. They're typically in their life aiming primarily for comfort or peace or pleasure or happiness or satisfaction or success. None of those things is wrong. It's totally healthy to work hard for success. It's totally healthy to pursue uh, things like contentment, pleasure, happiness in life. The problem is when that is your primary aim, you become willing to circumvent the pathway of Jesus in order to get there. In other words, the person doesn't want to sin but they end up often in sin because they're circumventing Jesus in the process. And what I have to say is like, you're aiming in the wrong direction. I couldn't think of a better analogy from this, but like, if you're aiming at something else that is an otherwise target, but not aiming through Jesus, you're going to ruin, you're gonna gonna cause some damage with your relationship with Jesus and with that other thing. It's a little bit like aiming through the the scope of a rifle, right? You don't just aim at the target, you aim through the scope, you aim through the crosshairs. Uh, because if you're just kind of eyeballing it, you know, you're going you're gonna to hurt something and you're going to hurt yourself. You have to pass through the gate. Aim through Christ. This is the old C.S. Lewis, by the way, in Mere Christianity, has this kind of famous line where he says, Aim for heaven and you'll get earth throw in. Aim for earth, you'll get neither. You get it? If you're aiming for heaven, you'll get some of the best things of this life thrown in. If you're aiming primarily for earth, you're gonna ruin your relationship with heaven, you're gonna ruin your relationship with this earth. I'm fairly pretty convinced because I was reading, uh, rereading through St. Augustine's City of God a little while ago, and I'm pretty sure Lewis got it from him. In the City of God, uh, St. Augustine says, how can a man escape unhappiness if he worships felicity, which is just another word for happiness, If he worships felicity as divine and deserts God who is the giver of felicity, In other words, how can somebody get happiness if he deserts the God who gives happiness? Don't aim for happiness. Aim for God and get happiness thrown in. That means when you wake up in the morning, don't try to have a good day. Try to glorify God and you will have a good day. You see the difference? Okay, Uh, it brings me to the final point. The security of the good shepherd, rest in the security of God as the good shepherd. The reason that you can trust Jesus as the gate is because he's also the good shepherd. And this, by the way, is the most personal and intimate of all of the I am statements, the I am metaphors that Jesus gives in John's gospel. We've seen them already. You know, I am am the gate. I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd is the most personal and intimate of them. You notice he doesn't say, I am the good cattle rancher. He doesn't say, I am the good chicken farmer. He says, I'm the good shepherd because I have an intimate relationship with my sheep. The relationship between shepherd and sheep is the most intimate of relationships between master and creature to such an extent that he knows everything about them and that they only listen to his voice. Interestingly enough, you know, we said sheep aren't totally, they're not super sharp, but but they know one thing. They don't listen to the voice of a stranger. They only listen to their master's voice, their shepherd's voice, and that's enough to keep them safe well-fed, and healthy. And, you know, the the tension point in this text is the fact that, you know, throughout all 29 verses, it really happens on two occasions, but Jesus has this argument with the Pharisees. You know, at first he has cured the man who was born blind, and uh, then he, you know, what happens later on in the text is we're told he's at this thing called the Feast of Dedication. And the Feast of Dedication, if you don't know, it's actually, in modern terms, we refer to this generally as Hanukkah. Uh, It's a festival of lights. It's a celebration of what took place in 164 BC when a guy named Judas Maccabeus led a revolt to get rid of the Romans who had occupied the Jewish temple. They had desecrated the Jewish temple. Uh, He led a revolt by which he pushed them out. They reclaimed, and so the rededication of the temple was done every year at this Hanukkah festival. It wasn't one of the three major festivals, but it nonetheless was celebrated by many Jews, and it was a festival of lights. So they lit candles, candles, In their homes, they lit candles around the city. They lit candles at the temple in Jerusalem. And yet the great irony of it is Jesus is saying, you guys got lights everywhere, but the the light of the world is standing in front of you and you don't see it. Like, do you grasp the irony of that? The pride of people who consider themselves to be the most enlightened in life often leads them to miss the light of the world. And by not listening to Jesus, that meant they weren't listening to God. And by not listening to God, that meant that they weren't actually God's sheep. And it didn't matter how much evidence they had because they had seen Jesus perform the signs. They had seen Jesus cause the crippled man to walk. They had seen him feed thousands of hungry people miraculously. They had seen him bring a blind man to sight and it wouldn't have mattered if he would die and rise from the grave. They're still not believing. Why? Because belief is not simply the product of good evidence. Belief, their unbelief, in this instance, is the product of refusing to confess that by nature they were, in fact, sheep and refusing to acknowledge that Jesus was, in fact, their good shepherd. But that's where you differ. If you're in my earshot tonight, you know different. You know, I don't think that you would be sitting here tonight to some extent if you didn't believe that he was the good shepherd, if you weren't following him and listening to his voice. And there might be a bunch of different reasons for that, by the way, because there's all sorts of good reasons to have Jesus as the good shepherd of your life. The single most compelling one is this. He says, I'm the good shepherd because the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. In other words, you should follow Jesus because he knows you really well. He knows you better than you know yourself. That's a good reason to follow him, but it's not the best reason. You should follow Jesus because he accepts you unlike anybody else. He knows the worst things that you've ever done, even the stuff that you haven't confessed to your closest friends and family, and yet he hasn't run away in horror. He's stuck with you. He is incredibly faithful. Even though you've tried to run away from him on multiple occasions, he has has run you down and rescued you. You should follow him as your good shepherd for that reason. For that matter, he's he's smarter than us. He's stronger than us. He's more competent than us. All of those are reasons to follow him as our good shepherd. But the most important reason, the most compelling reason is because of grace. Because the good shepherd laid down his life for us, his sheep. What that means then is it doesn't really matter why he's asking whatever it is that he's asking of you. That's, That's fairly irrelevant. Very clearly, he's not trying to hurt you. Whatever he's asking of you right now, whatever he's asking you in scripture, he's not trying to hurt you because he's proven he would much rather face the hurt of hell than have you go through hurt. The cross of Jesus Christ undeniably proves that he loves you and the empty tomb of Jesus Christ undeniably proves that he's powerful enough to help you. He's competent to help every single detail of your life. The good shepherd came to lay down his life as a sacrificial lamb who takes away the sins of the world so that any of us who have ever wandering sheep could be rescued, thrown on his shoulders, and carried home to heaven. The good shepherd has this threefold relationship with his sheep. It's a loving relationship because he dies for us. It's a living relationship because he's constantly tending to every single need every moment of your life. And it's a lasting relationship because not a single thing or person can steal us out of his arms. Let's close the prayer. Lord Jesus, our good shepherd, we lack nothing. We lack nothing. You lead us lovingly. You refresh our souls. And we fear nothing. May our faithful following glorify your name. It's in your name we pray. Amen.